Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. Hello everyone, this is Michael B. That's a clinical wrap for this episode of the episode Candida, of Chronicles. Candida Chronicles. Today we're going to have an interesting discussion regarding why we rotate antifungals, which is uh, something which is often not taken up in detail enough and explained enough. The notion of rotating antifungals is something that's relatively new. It began with my practice and it has since spread where other people are using this concept. And the, the concept itself is based on a very simple fact. It, the fact is, is that candida albicans and all strains of candida and all strains of funguses and yeasts are very re- drug-resistive. They become drug-resistive very easily. They typically become drug-resistive uh, after about 21 days of exposure to the same medicine. This means that whether you're taking an herb or a doctor-prescribed medicine, After 21 days on that medicine, the candida cells begin to genetically mutate and become resistive to that medicine. Now, it may take them longer than 21 days to achieve this, but that's where the mutation uh, appears to begin. The exact way that candida does mutate is found in various mycology texts. I won't bore you with the technical aspects of this, but I will give you some idea of how it happens. Candida essentially has two types of cells. One type of cell is referred to the mother cells, and the other cells, the newer ones, which are budding, are referred to as daughter cells. It's the object of the mother cell to help the, let's say, uh, the construction of the daughter cells by providing it with essential information, particularly DNA information, as to how it goes about growing, uh, getting nutrition, etc. When the mother candida cells have been exposed to a medication for 21 days, they begin to impart the data on how this medication is affecting the mother cells to the daughter cells. The daughter cells then mutate and physically change their structure and their mode of operation so that the medicine no longer is able to kill the daughter cells as they grow up to become mother cells. Uh, And this is particularly in the fungal form of candida. Uh, This is a question people ask very frequently, is does this occur in the yeast form? Uh, The answer is no, not to my experience. I have not read anything authoritative in any of the, the literature which really points to this. Most of the data on this is regarding this phenomena occurring in the fungal stage. And the reason, another anecdotal reason why this is probably true, 
is if you look at what happens when a person is taking antifungals, particularly women, you look at the fact that very often they develop a vaginal yeast infection. Now, you don't see the opposite happening. You don't see people who had yeast infections taking antifungals and then developing fungal infections. My reason for posing this material is that, or this, uh, this theory or postulate, is that it's the conversion from the fungal form to the yeast form that is noticeable in people when either men or women, when they have a fungal infection, when they take the antifungal, they can then start developing yeast symptoms, which is an expression of the fungal form of candida now flipping itself over to the yeast form. And as I said, I have, not, I have no experience clinically where I've seen this happen in reverse. It's, it's almost, it is always, to my knowledge and my awareness, that you get the fungal form flipping to yeast, not yeast necessarily flipping to fungal. So this is one of the first reasons why we rotate antifungals is to avoid the candida becoming drug-resistant to the antifungal medication. If it becomes drug-resistant, then the medication no longer works. Uh, many times over and over again in the 30 years or so that I've been doing this, we hear from patients that they were on a program the doctor gave them with nystatin or some herbal substance. They were getting better. Uh, they were getting better. Then they started not to do as well. They even raised the dose of the medication. It didn't seem to help. In some cases, it made it worse by raising the dose. And the next thing you know, three to five months later, the person was right back where they started, even though they were on that same program. This was one of the things that really encouraged me to reach out and really study Candida and the entire field of mycology from, from more from a practical experience to see how Candida would interact with different treatment plans, different diets and whatnot because of this very elusive phenomena that was occurring. Um, what, as I said, one of the most common things we would hear from patients, irregardless of what they were taking, the, the key thing is they were taking a program and the program was always centered around a specific group of substances which were antifungal which were taken daily. They took this program daily. The program worked initially to reduce the symptoms, which we would have to then say means it was reducing the, the uh, infection. But then at some point it stopped working and everything started to gradually reverse. This is where the candida then becomes drug resistant and starts to just multiply back the way it was. And generally speaking, when you look at the life cycle of yeast, how long it takes the uh, daughter cells to become mother cells, how long you would expect someone to be on an antifungal to the point where it may reduce the colonies enough to where they would see improvements. You, generally, you're looking at three to four months. And um, from my experience, that is, that is also correct in terms of patient uh, testimony. It's usually three to four months would have probably a maximum of six. So let's say three to six months where the person would uh, experience their improvement and then at the end of that six-month uh, period, they would start to have the relapse again. So this is very interesting because this explains a tremendous amount in terms of why people can't get better with QF candida. 
But there's nothing sadder to me, actually, than going on the internet and looking at different Candida blogs and groups and whatnot, and where I see people are taking the same antifungal every day, over and over again, and they're, they're not only mixing this antifungal with other vitamins and nutrients, and, but they're also putting in probiotics, which are going to be completely ineffective until the person has significantly reduced their candida. The, the people who are involved in these groups and these blogs are very well in, uh, intentioned, but very, very much misinformed. They're using a lot of anecdotal uh, information that they're getting from other people, people who are also experimenting on themselves to try to cure this condition. And it's, it's never going to work. You'll get people who will suddenly come out and say, but I cured my candida by doing blah, blah, blah. Well, th these people don't have any evidence they had candida in the first place. That becomes the first question when you challenge them. Because if you want to look at this from a scientific viewpoint, a very true scientific viewpoint, you have to lay down certain curriculum. The first is how do you establish that one has the problem or that one has the illness? You have to have proof that the illness exists and it has to be on a quantitative basis so that you can have proof that it, it does also reduce. So the first thing you need is a test that's going to measure your level of candida in some way so that you can see periodically if the level is going down or going up or what it's doing. None of these people that are involved in these blogs and these self-help groups have such a test. They're doing all of this strictly based on their symptoms. So just from that viewpoint, when they say, I cured my candida, they don't know that they've cured their candida. They have actually no scientific proof that their candida is gone. They can only tell you their symptoms are better. And for that matter, we don't have any scientific proof they had candida in the first place. There are other conditions which overlap with candida and produce similar symptoms. So it's important when you're looking at a candida case and you're making these assumptions that you can actually back it up with some kind of science. A good example of this would be the interreactions between uh, candida and toxic metals. And why I say this is because EDTA, which is a very popular chelator of metals, also has antifungal properties. So if you have someone, for instance, who has a toxic metal problem and a candida problem, and he goes on EDTA and he starts to feel better, and he's taking this EDTA for a few months to chelate, it's possible that he could cause his candida to become drug-resistive to the EDTA from the viewpoint of it being and having an antifungal action. Uh, this isn't true with other antifungals. Antifungals don't tend to be chelators of toxic metals, uh, with a few exceptions. So here's where the, this is where confusion enters in. Now the other reason why we rotate antifungals is because each antifungal substance that we choose will have other actions and effects on other microorganisms, which can be important if the person has a true dysbiosis. And again, to review, the term dysbiosis means you have an imbalance between the different categories of bad organisms, and primarily there are three. There are yeast and fungus, there are bacteria, there are parasites. Those are the three typical groups 
of bad organisms that cause dysbiosis. So the imbalance occurs between the bad organisms and the good ones like acidophilus, bifidus, and uh, E. coli strains. So when you pick an antifungal, and you pick an antifungal which has broad-spectrum actions, these antifungals have the ability not only to kill the fungus that you're concerned with, but also some of the bacteria and the parasites that you may be concerned with. And there are many good representations of these substances out there in the naturopathic and herbal community. There are very few, probably none, in the pharmaceutical or medical community because they are, there are no broad-spectrum substances I'm aware of in the medical community except for broad-spectrum antibiotics, which, of course, have no effect at all on fungus and, in most cases, no effect at all on parasites. So when we are going to talk about, at this point, um, broad-spectrum medicines, we're going to have to limit our discussion strictly to the botanical family, since that's the only family that uh, has examples of these. There are botanicals, which are very effective antifungals, which are also effective against staph and strep. Uh, Lomatium comes to mind as one of the first ones I could think of. Also, there are botanicals, also effective against different types of staph aureus and Mercer infections, which are also antifungal in their properties. Well, L-campaign comes to mind there. Uh, as a single, these are single herbal treatments. Oregano oil is effective against many bacteria and certainly effective against candida. Uh, plus there are uh, formulas made by various companies, Biobotanica, Metagenics, and whatnot, which contain several ingredients which deliberately make them quite broad-spectrum. And when you rotate these broad-spectrum pro products, you get a much better effect because you're, you're killing the dysbiosis that you have as opposed to just killing candida. See, just, just killing candida is not really all that difficult if you know some of the basic rules. The key is to restore your beneficial flora and to get rid of your dysbiosis. And once you say the, dis, the word dysbiosis you're automatically admitting to not only a candida infection, but also bacteria and perhaps parasites. So when we use the word dysbiosis, we're saying that we have three types of infections in the colon going on. It's not just candida. The, the typical person that has candida has dysbiosis. It's actually um, difficult, in a sense, to find someone who has candida who does not have dysbiosis. So in actual fact and in actual truth, if we were really speaking scientifically, uh, the word and, then, and the term candida as it's used on the internet is really a false term. Yes, candida can be a prominent infection on someone's case, but the truth is that if the person develops candida as a true overgrowth and a dominant infection, they're also going to have the same environment in their intestinal tract and in their body that would harbor other infections. And if you look closely enough and actually test the person, you will find out that they do have these other infections occurring simultaneously as the candida is. Uh, the, the reason why this is not a popular theory 
or terminology amongst people is because, once again, the majority of the people who have awareness in this area are people on the Internet who blog and belong to different groups where they exchange information. And the, there is a dramatic weakness of testing on the individual, which occurs in these particular groups. These groups are great at communicating how they're spending their money on different supplements and the different mixture of things they're taking and theories that are out there. But as far as being really scientific, um, all of these groups completely fail in being truly scientific because they themselves lack the impetus or the conviction to actually get themselves tested and have themselves retested with some kind of regularity so that you can see a, a timeline of how the tests are being affected and how the treatment protocol they're doing is interacting with their candida or dysbiosis in a sense where you could then actually see it on the test itself. Because there, there's the tendency to go by, by all the symptoms. So if a person, as an example, goes on a, a candida or a dysbiosis treatment, and at the same time, they develop a flu, they're very apt to confuse the symptoms. And you'll hear that they'll attribute their flu symptoms now to die-off. Now, they don't know necessarily that's true that they're having die-off. They're assuming that. There is testing available that can help you differentiate whether or not you're having die-off or not. And unless you're doing this testing, you're at a big disadvantage. So just to recap here, the, the two reasons why we rotate the antifungals, the first major one is that we want to avoid drug resistance, as I said, op opening the show, which is a very common, all too common, all too common. There are many people out there who are on candida programs who are literally teaching their strain of candida to bounce and mutate from candida albicans to candida tropicalis, which is one of the most commonly mutated strains that we've seen in our practice when we've tested people. The other reason why we rotate is because we want these substances we use to be botanical in nature because it is only the botanicals. There are no pharmaceutical drugs really that have this ability. Uh, the botanicals are the only ones that have the ability to be broad, broad spectrum enough to not only kill yeast and fungus, but also kill bacteria and parasites simultaneously, which is then the sought cure for dysbiosis, a true, a true dysbiosis. The question then arises, well, how do you know which antifungal to use, which is the best to use? We did a podcast a few weeks ago that was entitled, uh, What is the Best Antifungal? And I think when we were promoting it on Facebook and on Twitter, I think we may have also thrown in something about how we're now going to reveal this big secret as to what the best one actually was. And we had quite a lot of people listen to that podcast, so I'm sure everybody was very curious. And unfortunately, I started the podcast off by telling everyone that um, there was no best antifungal. It was sort of like um, Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds. This was a, a total a total fabrication. There is no best antifungal. The best antifungal is the one that is best for you that you derive from testing. And even at that point, it's not the best one because it needs to be rotated 
It needs to have a companion to be rotated off of. Otherwise, that best antifungal soon will become uh, completely useless as your strain of candida becomes drug resistant to it. So how do we select then the best antifungals, plural, to rotate? Well, we have to go back to the term dysbiosis because this is truly where the answer is. Um, the first thing that we look at uh, in the Biamonti method, we have the tremendous advantage of having the Biamonti home urine test, which differentiates between parasite activity, fungal and yeast, and then bacteria. So that's a, a dramatic advantage we have. Also, that urine test is able to tell us if the person is having die-off at the time they do the test. There really aren't any other tests that can do that. A DNA test for candida, if there was such, such a thing, which I don't think there is presently, but if if we had a fungal load test, as we have viral load tests, they could tell you whether or not you were having die-off. Unfortunately, the, the, the calm lag between you taking that test in the laboratory and getting results back may not make it practical, where with the Biamonte urine test, you get the results immediately when you do the test. But going back to the question, the answer to what is the best antifungal for a given person lies in examining the term dysbiosis and how that term dysbiosis relates to that person. Because if the person who is looking for the antifungals also has bacterial dysbiosis, then the best antifungal for him is going to be an antifungal which also kills his bacteria. From a practical standpoint and functional standpoint, this is very, very, uh, let's say, high, very, very high tech. Uh, because most people out there are completely unfamiliar with thinking this way. It's not that this is particularly hard to do. It's just that going into this mode of thinking is very hard for people because they're not used to approaching it in this manner. So let's say, as an example, I, we can use two different examples of testing, which would serve as a model for this. We can use the Biamonte home urine test, and we can also use a stool test, which is becoming very popular, called the GIFX done by Genova, which is a, a DNA stool test. If someone was using the Biamonte urine test, they would look at the test and they would look to see if the bacterial indicators were elevated. And that, that is the part of the test called the indicant test. So if the person has a heavy candida reaction on the dysbiosis marker, which is the test that curdles, if this test curdles heavily and at the same time their indicant level is above a one, let's say it's a two or a three, then that person is going to look for and antifungals, which also can destroy bacteria, probably equally as well as destroy fungus, because then that reduces the curdling on the dysbiosis marker, and it reduces the indicant level. If the person has a very high score on the red part of the candida testing, which is called the oxidative test, at that point they're going to look for uh, substances 
which kill Candida systemically through the actions of either nanciscent oxygen of uh, hydrogen peroxide, particularly magnesium peroxide, or ozone. Those would be the three forms of oxygen that would be used with that pattern on the test. The original product uh, that released oxygen that was first used back in the 70s and 80s was called DC3 or dioxychlor. It came from Mexico. Um, and this product was used for viruses, it was used for cancer, it was used for many different types of infections. It's based on the, uh, the premise that when you have a, a molecule that contains sodium and chloride, and oxygen for that matter, when you split the sodium and the chloride, you release the oxygen. And this is what happens typically when, these, uh, when the, this product on a cellular level enters a microorganism or enters a human cell, particularly a cancer cell. The sodium and the chloride split, oxygen is released, and the oxygen then um, causes damage to the cells, the bad cells. Hydrogen peroxide works in a similar way. Hydrogen peroxide in the form of magnesium peroxide works by having the magnesium carry the hydrogen peroxide across the cell membrane, and then it releases it inside the cell, and that causes a burning of the cell. And ozone works in a very similar way to both of these products, but more similar to the hydrogen peroxide. So the person who has this on the, on the test, the high red score, is going to be looking for those types of products. But if he, let's say he also has an elevated indicant score, he's going to have to choose some things to rotate which also could address the indicant. This is where you could get a, a rotation of things which are a bit varied. The person could have some of the oxygenating supplements. He could have some of the th supplements which are uh, more effective against uh, candida or, or then more effective against candida and bacteria at the same time. pH also comes into play here. Um, when Typically, the intestinal tract has a pH somewhere between 6 and 7.2 or 7.4. Now that's your intestinal tract. That would equate to your stool pH. This does not mean your urine pH. This is a typical thing that's very confusing to, to people. Once you say pH, the next question should be pH of what? Yeah, but that's not always true. Most people strictly think of urine pH because urine pH is the most accessible that people usually take. Uh, there really isn't a very strong correlation sometimes between intestinal pH and urine pH. And the same would be true of saliva pH. Saliva pH more closely uh, mimics the blood pH than uh, the urine or the stool would. But to get a, an overall idea of the pH of, of your system, the easiest way to do this is to take both your saliva and your urine pH and you normally do this first thing in the morning and then throughout the day. And as you do it throughout the day, you need to recognize the fact that your pH is naturally going to become more alkaline throughout the day. We've had patients who came to us who were in the, the alkalinity fed, and they would take their pH in the morning, 
and let's say it would be 5.5 or something like that. This was their urine pH, which is typical for Americans. And then they would take alkalizing products that they buy at the health food store, and they would take these products throughout the day, and as they're doing this, they would be taking their pH throughout the day. And they would be marveling at the fact that as the day is proceeding, their pH is become more, becoming more alkaline, which is proof that the product is working. Well, what I had these patients do is I asked them to uh, not take the products throughout the day, just take the pH. And what's very interesting is you find the same thing happening even without the product. And this is because the pH naturally becomes more alkaline as the day goes on. So even whether they were taking the product or not, it really didn't make any difference. But in terms of how pH is workable and important in this, if a person has a very acid urine pH, taking an herbal formula, which is very alkaline and turns the urine pH a higher alkalinity, will be found generally to be more effective against the person's candida situation. The same thing would be true of the stool pH. If you have a person whose stool pH is highly alkaline, what's gonna be most effective on this person's case is an antifungal which makes the intestinal tract more acidic. Generally, as the intestinal tract becomes more alkaline, the bowels slow down and you become more constipated. There are different parasites and bacteria which make the bowels very acid, which te then tends to cause diarrhea. So in that case, the product that you would use would be a product which makes the intestinal tract more alkaline that would stop the diarrhea and that would stop those harmful bacteria from thriving, and that would help to reduce the person's dysbiosis. So you see, choosing an antifungal or choosing a medicine has to be based on some kind of science. Doing it haphazardly, the way most people do, is not productive. People who, as an example, um, use a stool test and based on the stool test, use the sensitivity test that's done automatically with a stool test, are in a better position than people who are just simply guessing. The drawback on these, these sensitivity tests that occur when you do a stool test is that they're not always correct because the substances very often work differently in your body than they do on the sensitivity test. I'll briefly explain this. Most modern stool tests come with an adenum, an attachment, where they will, if they find harmful bacteria or yeast in your test, they will grow that bacteria or yeast on a separate dish, and then they'll expose it to different medicines, different botanical medicines and different drugs. And they'll see if those drugs or botanicals in interfere or inhibit the growth of those bad organisms that they found. If they do, they didn't consider these medicines successful against your particular case. And that's, that would be good if that was the entire truth of it and it ended right there. That would be wonderful because that would give you something very scientific to be able to choose your medicines by. What's unfortunate is that especially when it comes to the natural botanicals, they work differently in your body than they do on the petri dish. Many of the natural botanicals not only have the ability to kill the organisms directly, but they also in a way pump up and aim your own immune system at these organisms which make them even more effective.
And that information you can't really get by looking at how it affects inhibition of the growth of these organisms on the petri dish. That's not something you can find out in that, in that test. But still, uh, what I would argue is it's still better than nothing, and it's still giving you something scientific to base your treatment on. Well, folks, that's going to be the end of this episode. I hope you found this interesting. This is certainly data that people need. Uh, people, whether you're a physician or you're a patient who's self-treating, you have to be aware of this information and have to know, uh, know of it in order to use it on your program if you are going to have any hope of success. So this is Michael Biamonte with the Candida Chronicles, and we will be on the air again this Thursday, and we hope to have you tune in. So good night and be well. Featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.